you know, how miserable I was swimming in my own sins um, the majority of my life, rejecting the truth of Jesus when it's right smack dab in front of your eyes. I was always an anxious kid. Um, as high school started, definitely got a little bit more anxious when I went to college. That anxiety just increased. Flash forward to my junior year, really had my first straight on anxiety attack. Um, and for me, my, my cycles are, you know, I'll have a anxiety attack and um, I would say pre-salvation. That anxiety attack leads to just suicidal ideation of, man, this, this can't go on any longer or you know, I'm gonna kill myself. It was miserable. Um, it wasn't fun and every time it would happen you would get more scared that it would happen the next time. It kind of makes you reevaluate life. Throughout that time, I searched everywhere and did everything I possibly could to figure out what was going on. Around that time, I had a friend that went to UBC um, and he was a friend that was just pouring into my life. Um, he, he spoke the gospel to me. Now looking back, more times than I can even remember. But each time it would just kind of go over my head. Um, and he knew I wasn't saved. Uh, but it was just incredible how he never gave up. And flash forward um, to another part of my life, another person spoke the gospel to me. She asked me, um, when, when were you saved? And uh, I said, what do you mean by saved? And that night was the most important conversation with another human being I've ever had. She explained to me why Jesus came. I always just thought if I worked hard enough and checked off the box, my my good uh, my good deeds would probably make up for the bad deeds, and I'd just be a good person, you know. She's like Tommy, that through and in Christ Jesus, the only way you have that is if Christ Jesus is into you, and the only way Christ Jesus is in you is if you acknowledge that you're not a good person. You're a sinner. God is perfect and holy. And and his wrath is upon you right now. And you're not getting any of the fruits of the Spirit. You're not getting peace and love and joy and all these things that, that you so desperately crave and you're trying to control. You thought that you could do it yourself and that you thought you didn't need a Savior. You thought you, you didn't think you were a sinner who needed a Savior. And that's sin right there, because God's not asking you to be like that. Um, he's saying, follow my right and wrong. And when you create your own right and wrong, you try to live up to it, it creates an anxiety and perfectionism that, that you swim in. The gospel finally clicked for me that night. And um, yeah, it was, it was beautiful. The day of the baptism was something I'll, I'll never forget. It's the strongest I've ever felt the Holy Spirit work through me. Um, I do just remember basically losing control and it kind of felt like the Holy Spirit was driving through there. I wasn't proud of me, I was proud of what God did. My anxiety is still there, but those cycles of anxiety are always cycles of these massive sanctification periods where, where sin is being revealed in my life. And I'm so grateful it is after because I grow and I learn more about how deeply Jesus cares for me. I learn more about what He, what he has in store for me. There's certainly anxiety-provoking times, but it ends up in me praising God rather than cursing God and you know, on the brink of ending my life. So we've got um, a growth group uh, that Grant Kovac leads in his house, and um, it's an absolute blessing to meet with, with Jason. 
Also, Scott Dixon has been discipling myself um, and a couple other um, guys in our growth group, and and then um, Julie's father, you know, my future father-in-law. He also leads a uh, Bible study um, in Ephesians, so I'm just getting poured into it. It's it's fantastic. I mean, I'll just be forever grateful for my buddy Grant who poured into me, um, and my my beautiful fiance who poured into me. But other than that, just unpeeling the, the layers of the onion and, and finding out how many people were praying for you in growth groups and how many people um, behind closed doors were, were praying that that Christ might finally like open my eyes. To see Jesus love me through all of that was amazing. Well, thank you to Tommy. I don't have to preach a sermon today. <laughs> Uh, I, I think one of the, as I've watched that, that video, it's just it's captured me, is a couple of things. Number one, that is what the church is supposed to be about, as you see Tommy's story. Uh, an unreached person who received Christ and now being discipled to grow in Christ uh, with the community. Uh, but really, as you see the story of Tommy, a guy who struggled with anxiety, still struggles with anxiety, but whereas before it led to suicidal thoughts, now it leads to thoughts of gratitude for the Lord. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story of Christianity. So thank you to Tommy. Um, I am Scott Dixon, an elder, and I do have a couple of elder announcements. Uh, the first one is about last Sunday. If you weren't here, or if you were here, was Recommitment Sunday for our Make Him Known initiative. Uh, just thank you for everybody who participated. Uh, Pastor Jason will tell you more about that in the coming weeks. I just wanted to remind any of you that were not here or were unable to do it last week, you can do it online. Go to ubcbeavercreek.com. There's a big orange banner, uh, and you can click on that. And again, I had to be reminded of this. Even if you were continuing what you'd said last year, they still want us to recommit. So go ahead and do that, or if you've never committed uh, to do that as well. And the second announcement, also uh, connected to uh, the website, we are officially launching our search for the next hire here at UBC, a part-time, don't miss that, part-time, director slash pastor of New Connections. Uh, if you would be interested in something like that or have a friend who might be, they can go to ubcbeavercreek slash employment.com to see the job description and also uh, the steps for application. So we'd appreciate your help with that. All right. Uh, we live in a world full of want. And that uh, statement, that, that reality came home to me a few months ago when I read an article entitled The Haves and the Have Yachts. I love that title, by the way. Uh, and it's about a, a, a class of people in our world who own what they call super yachts. Any of you here? No. Um, in order to own a super yacht, it has to be 98 feet long. Okay. But if you happen to own one over 230, then you own a mega yacht. And if your ship gets bigger than 300, you're the proud owner of a giga yacht. Only 100 of those in the world today. Uh, the biggest yacht actually is one called Azam in the world. It is 590 feet long. That's two football fields for all you Buckeye fans. 
I O. You know, next, well, okay. Um, so you will not be surprised who owns this. It's a sheik from the Middle East, and it's worth $600 million. Why do we need super yachts? Well, they're called status transactions. I don't know if you have those yourself. They used to be art. You know, the rich people would collect art. Then they moved to French furniture, and then it was your own personal airplane. But those were not enough. Now you have to own your own luxury boat the length of a football field. Um, It's called something called the power of conspicuous consumption. You ever heard of that phrase? Uh, it's, 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 it's moving from artful finery to sheer needlessness. Here's the motto. In order to be reputable, it must be wasteful. So what these super yachts sell you are things you never knew you needed. Private helicopter, you can have it. IMAX theater, you got it. Disco, children of the 70s, yes. And they also have... Something for those of you who have always wanted your own personal submarine, you can have that as well. Now, why do they do this? Uh, One of the yacht owners said, we all need to feel that we're important in one way or another. It's a mutually reinforcing circle of validation. You have a chef? Well, I have a chef. You have a driver? Well, I have a driver. You can fly a private airplane? Well, I can fly a private airplane. But there's one place I can make it clear to the world that I'm in a different category than you because I own my own boat. Near the end of the article, the writer said this about the owners. This is, super yachts, the status anxieties of people who have everything. And I started to think, Wait a second. How can someone who has everything still be anxious? Answer, everything is still not enough. We live in a world full of want. In all honesty, I I, I can't really relate to the super yacht people. Um, But, but, there are things I thought, I think that if I only had that, life would be a lot better. Do you have those things too? Uh, I, if, if only my kids and my granddaughters lived closer, life would be better. Maybe you have a list. Maybe if I just had a little more, little more money in the bank, life would be better. Maybe if I had a little less drama in my family, and this is Thanksgiving week. <laughs> Why do I always get chuckles with that one? If I had an employer who appreciated me, or a body that doesn't break down as I age, life would be better. If I could find the perfect church, oh, life would be better. There's a a character in in a novel called the the novels The Towers of the Mist, and here's how the narrator describes this character. The life she wanted seemed always to elude her to be around her, to be in front of her, to be above her, but never quite within her reach. She did not quite know what it was that she wanted. She only knew that it was not what she had. That could be the thesis of our world, could it not? Augustine actually says it better as he says to the Lord, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. 
or as the prophet Jeremiah said, people will discover that they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We live in a a world full of want. The good news today is that David, uh, the hymn writer, the king, uh, he, he, he penned a psalm, a psalm of trust. And here's how it begins. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The better translation from the original language is the Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. Sublimely simple, yet simply sublime. Psalm 23 is the gospel in miniature. Dallas Willard said this about Psalm 23. This psalm reflects the nature of God and how the radiant sufficiency of the shepherd provides the life without lack. How do you live a life without lack and a world full of need? Turn and your Bibles to Psalm 23. David's going to show us how. How do you live in a life where everybody needs and wants something, even ourselves, to make life better? Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is a psalm of trust. Here's what David says. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you were with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. Psalm 23 is a psalm of trust. Psalm scholars can label the different types of psalms. You have psalms of lament and psalms of praise and messianic psalms, but this is a psalm of trust. See, there, in David's six verses, he's not exhorting us. He's not instructing us. He's testifying to us of God's faithful love and his faithfulness to his people. David's not praying that the Lord will be his shepherd, He confidently asserts it. See, there's no ifs, there's no I hopes. It's trust. And this trust in the Lord and the shepherd affects David's attitudes and it affects his actions. Simple illustration, I have a car sitting out in the parking lot. I have a car that got me from Cedarville, Ohio to Beaver Creek, Ohio this morning, and it's going to take me home this afternoon. And I'll be honest with you, I have not given it one little thought. Not worry, no anxiousness, it'll get me there. Now, one of my first cars cost $500. That $500 car, I gave a lot of thought if it was going to get me home or not. And some of you have been there, but I'm an empty nester now. I go big, right? I don't have to worry. I trust my car, and it affects my attitude, and it affects my actions. That's what trust is doing for David. But his trust isn't in the car. His trust is in the shepherd. 
One of the problems with Psalm 23 for us is it's too familiar, right? Even uh, non-churchgoers know Psalm 23. As somebody said, Psalm 23 is a sentiment carved on tombstones more than a reality written in lies. But it's Psalm 23 that will teach us how to live without lack in a world full of want because David points us to at least three reasons that we can trust the shepherd. Three reasons that we can become Psalm 23 people. Remember, when we fully trust in the radiant radiant sufficiency of the shepherd, we will discover we have all we need. First reminder, we can trust the shepherd because he cares for us intimately. We can trust the shepherd because he cares for us intimately. The Lord is my shepherd. Sheep, shepherds, big theme in the Bible. Over half the books of the Bible mention sheep or shepherds. Abel, shepherd. Abraham, shepherd. Isaac, Jacob, even Rachel, shepherd, shepherd, shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Prophet Amos was a shepherd. They were all shepherds. Of course, they were pointing to the ultimate good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Sheep and shepherds is a big theme. Scripture states that the Lord is the shepherd of many sheep. Psalm 95, he is the God, our God. We are the people of his pasture and the flock under his care. Yet David is trusting in this psalm, and the Lord who's the shepherd of many sheep, he's trusting that shepherd as his shepherd. You are good and all-powerful, Augustine wrote, caring for each one of us as though we are the only one in your care. Did you know that you have the Lord's full attention this morning? That I have the Lord's full attention? Man, that's a little bit crazy to consider. Little old me has the full attention of the creator of the universe. I mean, there are certain people, right, in this world who are big personalities. They demand attention. Even in the world center stage, reminds me of a description of a former president Teddy Roosevelt, not that president, and his daughter, Alice. And this is what she said of Teddy Roosevelt. My father always wanted to be the corpse at every funeral, the bride at every wedding, and the baby at every christening. Teddy Roosevelt was a big personality. He demanded attention, and he got it for most of his life, but it was still fickle, and it was ultimately temporary. Psalm 23, David's testifying, we have the Lord's full attention, his full shepherdly care, personally, intimately, all the days of our life. A 19th century Baptist minister thought about this, and he wrote, your life, talking to us, is wonderfully interesting to him, to God. Every step of it is the subject of his thoughts. Doesn't matter how ordinary your life seems to you, how boring, doesn't matter how young you are or how old, doesn't matter whether you're in good health or ill, doesn't matter whether you are rich or poor, doesn't matter whether you're black and white or white or any other color, he made you just as you are. He's thinking about you and he's planning for you every day of your life. Now, how can I and you and a few other billion people have someone's full attention? Answer, because the someone is God. See, God is, is, is infinite. He can give you his attention because he has unlimited supply. 
But God's also intimate. He can give you his full attention because he's a limited amount of love. As a newborn baby has her mommy's full attention. The first time the nurse places that baby on her mother's breast, we have God's full attention each and every day. The Lord is my shepherd. Isaiah says it this way. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him, the might, power, the omniscience, omnipotence of our God. But then in verse 11, Isaiah says, he, that same God, will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will gather them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Mighty God is a caring God. Jesus would take that intimacy even a step further than David when he says, I know my sheep and I call them by name. He doesn't just know us, he names us. How can we live in a world full of want without lack? We need to trust the shepherd who cares for us intimately. By the way, you have a choice on who to trust. Do you know that? Uh, you can be like David, connected to the shepherd, trusting him. Or you can go the other way. Live life on your own, disconnected from the shepherd, and trust in yourself. Uh, a, a one uh, writer penned an article that he called the Anti-Psalm 23, where he laid out the photographic negative of Psalm 23 and what life would be like if you didn't trust the shepherd but trusted yourself. And his first line goes like this, I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. Does it remind you of the yacht people? As I was thinking about this, I was drawn to a cultural theologian of our age, even a cultural hymn writer. Her name is Taylor Swift. Uh, I have been tempted to teach a class at school on the theology of Taylor Swift. I think that would get a lot of students, don't you? And I think I would have titled it, A Love Story Turned Mean. Okay. So I started to plan for that class, spent a lot of time doing it, but realized I didn't have the time to teach it, so I just kind of shook it off. I'll see you next week. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you knew how many hours it took me to come up with those jokes. Uh, <laughs> if I only put that many hours in the rest of the sermon, I don't know. No, I suck. Um, those are the things that come to me at 2 in the morning, to be honest with you. Um, you should say, just keep them. <laughs> don't, 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 you don't need to share them. Um, but really, here, I, I actually did see a statement by Taylor Swift that got me thinking because she gave a speech, a commencement speech last year to New York University, NYU. And here's what she said. It can be really overwhelming. Figuring out who to be and when, who you are now and how to act in order to get where you want to go. And I have some good news. It's totally up to you. And I have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. Taylor's right. That is terrifying news. It's impossible news. You can trust yourself 
or you can trust the shepherd. When we're connected to the shepherd, my shepherd, then we're connected to the one who knows us the best and still loves us the most. You'll never find anybody else like that. He cares for us intimately. Remember, he knows your name. Second reason we can trust the shepherd, he leads us intentionally. He leads us intentionally. Just reflect on the verbs and the images of Psalm 23. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness. It's not a cowboy driving the cattle to market. He's a shepherd leading us to the water. He doesn't give us a map. He just says, follow me. But one thing you need to note in Psalm 23, he's not just leading us through the green. He also leads us through the gray. See, David's trust is realistic. It's not pie-in-the-sky idealism. It's true to life. And when you follow the shepherd, some days you got green pastures, some days you got dark ravines. But he's still leading. He's still leading. That's why the so-called prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. During times of sadness and desperation, depression and even anxiety as Tommy mentioned has God quit leading us no the Lord Yahweh the covenant keeping God he never forgets his covenant with his people you know it's unusual for a psalm of trust to be all by itself like it is in Psalm 23 usually you'll find them in the middle of psalms of lament in fact, I'll give you an example. Psalm 77. The, uh, the psalmist is writing this. In the days of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In, my right, in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. Hmm. When I meditate, my spirit faints. This is the part I like. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. Have you ever been there? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? There are three types of people here this morning. Some of you that have been in that situation... Some of you are in that, some of, in that situation, and some of you will be in that situation. See, it's realistic, and we all face it. And we have to ask the question, what happens when you're caught up in a conflict between your faith and between your experience? What happens in this psalm of lament? What do you do? Verse 10, then I said, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. What do you do in the midst of lament? You remember and you trust. Um, 
there's a lot of discussion about the American church that we're not very diverse, which unfortunately is true when it comes often to ethnicity or social class. But I want you to know there is a place where the church is very diverse, generationally. Do you ever think about that? All the different age groups we have here at UBC. And, and, and I think when we start to look at laments and, and trust and remembering that we got to start to ask this question. Older generation, when's the last time you told the younger generation of the goodness of God in your life? Younger generation, when's the last time you asked? See, God put us together as a body, and part of that body is different age groups and different phases and stages of experience, and the older group has the ability to look back and recount the goodness of the Lord in ways the younger group doesn't know yet. I started to think about maybe a new ministry here at church. I haven't asked anybody, so I'll just throw it out there. But maybe we need to have the ministry of generational conversation where we intentionally put the different generations together so the older generation can remember and reinforce their trust and so the younger generation can learn about how to trust. David says that the shepherd's rod and the staff comfort us. Remember, David's a shepherd. He knows all about this. The rod's the club. It's a defensive weapon. It's a symbol of the shepherd's strength, right? Sheep are totally helpless. They can't run. They can't fight. They depend totally on the shepherd for their security. But he also has a staff, and that's the gentle side. That's where he nudges the sheep on the path and even uses the crook to pick them up when they fall. We can follow, we can trust the Lord's intentional leading so we can follow Him unconditionally. One of the best descriptions of that I found in a story by Elizabeth Elliot, a Christian writer. And she tells the story of going to Wales over in Great Britain and visiting a sheep farm. And in this sheep farm, they had to every year give the sheep baths with an insect-killing antiseptic because sheep have a lot of wool which attract a lot of vermin which can actually kill them if they don't get rid of them. So the shepherds, the owners, right, they would, they would care for their sheep in ways that to the sheep seemed like they were drowning, but yet the shepherd from love would do for each of them what he knew must be done. Here's how Elizabeth Elliot describes it. One by one, John seize the animals. They would struggle to climb out the other side, and Mac, the sheepdog, well, he would snarl and snap at their faces to force them back under. And when they tried to climb up the ramp in a panicky way at the far end, John, the farmer, would catch them, spin them around, force them back under again, holding them by the ears, submerged for a few seconds. And as their lord and master was pushing their head under, drowning them, at least as far as the sheep could tell, their panicky little eyes would look up over the edge of the vat. And it was easy to see what they were thinking. What is God doing? Is our suffering and the panic we feel when unexpectedly drowning in sorrow and confusion, is that for nothing? Can God be trusted? Elizabeth Elliot buried three husbands the first at the age of 29, 
when he was martyred sharing the gospel in Ecuador. And here's what she said. I've had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. There are times I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from my great shepherd whom I trusted. And like these sheep, I didn't have a hint of explanation. There will be no intellectual satisfaction on this side of heaven to the age-old question, why? But although I have not found intellectual satisfaction, I have found peace. And the answer I say to you is not an explanation. The answer is a person. Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. And it's He who was the Word before the foundation of the world, suffering as a lamb slain. He has a lot up his sleeve that you and I have with the slightest idea about now, but he's told us enough so we know our suffering is not for nothing. We can trust. He leads us intentionally. And this journey of life that he gives us, it's not for nothing. And it's not forever. See, this suffering will come to an end. David includes more powerful imagery as he gets to verse 5 when he says the shepherd will intentionally guide us from start to finish. He'll prepare a table before us. He'll welcome us now from a shepherd to a host, giving us a feast that we're welcome to, not because of our worthiness, but solely due to his graciousness. He'll prepare this table in the presence of my enemies. Now that, that's kind of a curious line. Why would you bring up enemies in the middle of a psalm of trust? Well, it's this reason. In the psalms, throughout them, you will find people and nations who battle the sheep. Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. And David's reassuring us that in the end, God's grace and power will prevail even over our enemies. A mark of God's love, that steadfast love, will be made public for all, friend and foe, to see. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Think of the climate at that day. Dry, hot, dusty, arid, and refreshment that came with the oil and the water. And David knew that in spite of that long journey over the deserts of life, that he would have abundant blessing from the Lord. Refreshing blessing. Of course, Jesus said that he would be the sheep of our life and we could have life in him abundantly. God's plan is always good through both the green and the gray. So I can live without one. Reminder number three, the shepherd pursues us with a relentless mercy. The shepherd pursues us with a relentless mercy. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Really, our English word follow doesn't really get the sense of that verb. It's more of a pursuit. It's a chase. A chase, not by our enemies, but by the goodness and mercy of God. It's almost like His goodness and mercy haunt us. They won't let us out of their sight. If you have come this morning feeling lost, not knowing where life has you, 
understand that God's goodness is coming after you. And, and if you are here this morning running, you need to understand that God's mercy is chasing you. Now, this sounds like it could be the end of the journey, right? The ultimate zenith. But there is one more line. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, David has moved from the sheepfold uh, to the table, and now he gets to the house of the Lord. You see, Psalm 23 is not the end for us. It's just the beginning. And he takes us to commencement day, to the house of the Lord. And Revelation 7 says this, They shall no hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, and He will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How do you live a life without lack in a world full of want? By realizing that this world is not the final destination. But wait a second, how, how can David guarantee that world? I mean, he says we're going to have it, and we're going to have it without end. How, what is, what's been done to guarantee it? Well, we've got to go back to the good shepherd's words. When Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, and, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Wait a sec. The shepherd's killed for the sheep? Well, yeah, Jesus is echoing the words of Isaiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, that's the plot twist. The shepherd giving his life. That wasn't normal in the Middle East. If the shepherd gave his life for a sheep, what happened to the rest of them? Or look at it this way. We'll use business, cost-benefit analysis. Why is he shepherding the sheep in the first place? To take care of himself and his family. Who's more important in that economy? The sheep or the shepherd? Answer, the shepherd. So why would a shepherd give his life for the sheep? Because he's a good shepherd. He's chasing you with His goodness and His mercy. We're talking about a good shepherd. In fact, it was so good, our shepherd became a sheep. Huh? Yeah. The shepherd actually became a sheep. That's the plot twist inside the plot twist. Because how could that happen? How could a shepherd ever become a sheep? How could God ever take on the flesh of man? How could God become killable? Answer? Christmas. It's Christmas. We'll talk about that when we get to December. God, the shepherd, become a sheep. The sheep became a lamb. Revelation 5. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures 
and the elders are the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Hear that list of words? Power, wealth, wisdom. <laughs> That's what the yacht people wanted all along. They wanted that power and wealth and wisdom. That's what they wanted all along, but it's not what they needed. They need the lamb. That's what they needed. They needed goodness and mercy chasing them all the days of their life. What do we do? <laughs> and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all to them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be glory, blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We're made not to collect. We're made to give. We're made to find our life in the Lamb of God. We're made of worship. He's radiantly sufficient for all we need. The Lamb is my shepherd. I have what I need. Lord, let's thank you for Scripture, for all the different genres. We've been reading stories in the book of Acts which have been so encouraging and challenging. But now we just read a hymn, <laughs> just read a poem. It's beautiful, but it's life, and it's what we need. Lord, we're going to walk out of this place to a world that wants a lot of stuff and has no idea where to find it. And we're going to walk out of here tempted to join the crowd. I would pray that your spirit would use your word to help us trust the shepherd who became the lamb for us. In his name we pray, amen.